Hey, we are super glad you're here to worship with us this morning. This might be your very first service with us. We just want you to relax. Take it easy. We promise that this is going to be a life-giving morning for you. That's our goal, to help you encounter God and how much he loves you and to do it in a non-creepy way. That's what we're after, okay? That's what we are hoping to accomplish this morning. You can let us know afterwards if we were successful. Now, I'm going to start with a question for you, and I want you to answer this honestly. How many of you ever had your parents sit you down, maybe when you were a child, and say, I don't want you hanging out with that kid. He's a bad influence, or she always gets you in trouble. Anybody have to have that conversation? Yep, some of you have had that conversation already with your kids. Maybe you said to your children, look, it's not that I don't trust you, It's just, I don't trust them, right? And our parents told us this thing where they said, if you're not careful, even if you're not doing anything wrong, you're not involved in any of the trouble that that kid gets into, if you hang out with them too much, you are going to be viewed as guilty by Association. Yeah, you heard it. Guilty by association. All right, that was my first question. Here's my second question. How many of you guys were that kid? (laughs) You were the one that your parents said or the other kid's parents said, do not hang out with them. They're trouble. They're going to get you arrested. We're not having that. I forbid you from hanging out with that girl. Yeah, okay. Some of you guys were that person. Now, the worst Easter I ever had happened because of one of those kids. It was Easter morning, 1990. I was 10 years old, and uh, my parents had put together an Easter basket for my sister and I. Now, I was 10. I was too old for it, but I did enjoy the candy, and so I let them do it. You know, it was really more for them, but that's okay. It's another story. So... They put together this Easter basket for me. I get all sorts of chocolate, and I like to bite the ears off the bunny, and I'm not weird. You did that too. Um, So I had all this candy, and I was so excited, and then there was one plastic egg in the middle, and when I cracked it, I just knew there was something special about it. And when I cracked it open and looked inside, there was $20 inside. Boom! I was so excited. As a 10-year-old kid and growing up in a very poor family, I'm not totally sure I'd ever seen a $20 bill before. I had heard they existed, but I had never held one in my hands. And so I was so excited. My sister got the same egg. So between the two of us, we have $40. I'm 10, she's 9, and we want to go blow it all, right? And so right after we do our family thing, I tell my parents, I'm going down to the local Eckerd. Eckerd's Drug Store. If you're not from the U.S., Eckerd's is essentially shoppers, okay? So think shoppers drug mart and you'll be in the right building. We're going to go down there and we're going to spend our money on candy. And my parents are like, we just gave you a basket full of candy, but you can never have enough. And so we said, we're going down there and we're going to spend our money on as much candy as we can possibly get with $40. And so as we were headed out the door, I thought to myself, you know, I need to call my friend David. I need to see what he's up to. Maybe he wants to roll down there. Yeah, I bet he got a basket with some cash too. So let's go down to Eckerd. Let's go to the drugstore and buy up as much candy as we did. So we went to his house, knocked on the door, said, dude, come with us. Absolutely. So he went with us. We got to the store and it was like a kid in a candy store. We just couldn't believe how much selection there was. And because it was already Easter afternoon, everything was discounted. Like we felt like we were the richest people on the planet. So my sister and I are just taking our time, you know? 
know? We're like, no, I'm not going to waste my money on that. Oh, all right. Yeah, this is good. This is worth it. And oh, if I buy eight of these, that'll leave me with enough money to buy nine of those. And so we were really excited about all of it. We had spent about 30 minutes in the store. And then a manager came around the corner. He said, hey, you two, come with me. My sister and I are like, okay, he's an adult. We'll follow him. And so we started walking after him. He said, we need to go in the back. Now I'm in a good mood and I'm not too bright. So I'm thinking to myself, sweet, I'm going to get to see the back of the drugstore. This is pretty exciting. I've never been back there where the employees go. I'm looking forward to this. And so I'm following him around all excited. And he takes us back to the manager's office. And when we get there, David is already sitting in a chair and dude does not look happy. It is clear something has happened. And so the manager says, you two sit down right there next to him. And we're like, okay. And we sit down. He said, I want you to empty out your pockets. Take everything out. And we're like, what? Why? I don't understand. And so we start taking everything out. And he runs us through this whole spiel where we find out that David did not get any money in his Easter basket. And he had gone to the drugstore with us and he was pulling the old five finger discount, right? So he was just shoplifting, taking whatever he wanted. And because we were there, we all walked in together. And because we were there for a really long time, the manager assumed that we were in on it, that we had all come in to clean off his shelves and to steal what we could. And we told him, no way, man, we have money. Look, we've got cash. We came up here to buy stuff. There's no, there was no merchandise. We genuinely had not stolen anything at all. So he gets on the phone and he calls my dad and my dad comes down there. Of course, he's furiously upset with us because who are you going to believe, the manager or the little kid? He believed the manager. And so he gets there. We tell him the whole story. And finally, my dad, asks, well, what did you find in my kids' pockets? And he said, nothing. And my dad said, nothing? Wait, I thought you told me they were stealing. They were shoplifting. And he said, well, we didn't actually see them shoplifting, but they were with somebody who was shoplifting. And so we just assumed that they were. I was guilty by association. I was guilty because I hung out with the wrong person. So because we didn't have any merchandise in our pockets and because we had cash, we got to go home. David, on the other hand, got the cops called. They couldn't get a hold of his parents. So the police showed up and took him home and he was banned from the drugstore for life. I mean, like that's a terrible punishment, right? For a kid to be banned from the corner store. He was not allowed to go in there anymore. If you have ever been guilty by association in your life, If somebody has ever looked at you as if you were troublesome or as if you were a bad person, just because of who you hung out with, you know how unfair it is, right? Like you should be judged for the content of your character, not the company that you keep. You shouldn't be viewed as guilty or bad just because you find yourself surrounded by some people who do bad things or who are themselves guilty. It just doesn't seem fair, does it? In our world, we believe justice means that good people get rewards and bad people get punishment. And so David should have been punished and I should have been rewarded. I should have been like given extra money or extra candy or something because I didn't do what was wrong. That's how we think the world should work. But it's not always how the world works. Sometimes we do find ourselves guilty by association. And although that's generally a bad thing, I want to tell you guys, you should be incredibly grateful for guilt by association. Because Easter is a story of guilt by association. The entire life of Jesus is about guilt by association. 
When you read through the New Testament, the gospels, the, the, the stories of the life of Jesus, what you find out, the consistent theme that's told from the book of Matthew all the way through the end of the book of John is that Jesus chose to be guilty by association so that you and I could choose to be forgiven by association. That's the message of Jesus' life and teaching. That's the message of the story of the Bible. And that is the thing that we celebrate this Easter morning. Let me tell you what I mean by that. You see, in Jesus' day, right around the time that he came on the scene, everybody in ancient Israel, the country that Jesus lived in, they were waiting on somebody to come. This person was called the Messiah. That was the title that was given to him. They believed that the Messiah or the Christ is the Greek word. They believed that he was going to show up. He was going to come from God and be God's chosen or anointed one. And so everybody was expecting it. Like he's going to show up at any time. This guy is going to come from God. He's going to reveal God to us. It's going to be crazy. And so people had all of these expectations about who the Messiah was going to be. They expected he was going to be kind of like bigger than life, you know? He was going to be more than human. The Messiah was going to have like perfect muscles. He's going to have perfect teeth and perfectly combed hair. People were going to look at him and they're going to know that he's not just a guy. He came from God. They expected him to be very commanding, you know? In fact, most people in Jesus' day believed that the Messiah was going to be a military leader, like a soldier, like a man man's man, you know? And they assumed that when he came, he was going to show up and speak for God, that he was going to look at all the sinful people around and he was going to say to them, you done goofed because now I'm here and I'm ready for vengeance. That's what they believed, that God was going to send his chosen one to come to earth and lay the smack down on everybody who had done wrong. Now, it was the religious people of Jesus' day who believed that's who the Messiah was going to be. They thought he was going to be this superman, something more than average, untouchable, somebody that everybody gave honor and respect to. It would be so incredibly obvious who the Messiah was when he showed up. They believed the Messiah would be among them, but that he would not really be with them. Then the Messiah actually comes on the scene. There's this expectation he's going to be Superman, he's going to judge everybody, and everybody assumes that's what's going to happen. And then one day, the Messiah actually shows up, and his name is Jesus, and he's not exactly what people expected. You see, they thought the Messiah was just going to show up on the scene one day, you know? People were going to be like, where did he come from? I don't know. He just showed up one afternoon. But that's not the story that we find with Jesus. In Jesus' day, people knew that he was born to peasants in some backwoods part of the country. And according to most people in his day, they're like, yeah, I've heard some rumors about the way that he was born, you know, like somebody said he was born of a virgin. Mm -mm, that ain't going to fly. Some girl tried that in my high school. It didn't work for her. It's not going to work for his parents. She probably was shacking up with Joseph before they got married, and that's how he came along. There were all these rumors and stories, and not all of them were good. So the Messiah didn't just appear out of nowhere. Instead, he showed up in a way that was unexpected. 
And then he goes around and he's not actually interested in condemning everybody. In fact, he does the exact opposite. Rather than condemning, rather than judging, he finds himself constantly reconciling, restoring, welcoming everybody, regardless of who they are or what they've done or whether they're a good person or not or a religious person or not. He's blowing their expectations out of the water. He comes along and he says things like this. For God so loves the world that he has given his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but find eternal life. And the religious people are like, no, 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 bro, you got that one wrong. Because God doesn't love the world, God's angry with the world. Maybe he misspoke. We'll give him the benefit of the doubt on this one because he got that one all wrong. And then Jesus comes along and he looks at sinful people, broken people who had made terrible choices in their life. And he looks at him and he doesn't say, you're screwed. He looks at him and he says, your sins are forgiven. And when you read through the gospels, you find the religious leaders saying, no, 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 wait, wait. The Messiah is supposed to come and represent God. And God doesn't forgive sin, God judges sin. He's getting this all out of order. He's getting it all wrong. This is not the guy that we expected. He goes on. And he has further conversations with people. He does things that are totally unexpected, that shatter uh, expectations, preconceived notions about who it is that he's supposed to be. And nobody knows what to make of him. Nobody is sure why he's doing the exact opposite of what everybody expected him to do. Let me show you this next verse. It's one of my favorites. Jesus hung out with people that good religious folks wouldn't ever associate with, right? And so they started to say about him, you know, he's a little too close to those people, those people that we shouldn't be around, you know, those kind, you know who they were. And they said, he's too close to them. He's too much like them. In one instance, in the book of Matthew, they said of Jesus, look, he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of notorious sinners. Now, they were wrong about two out of those three. They were right about one. Jesus wasn't a glutton. He wasn't a drunkard, but apparently he liked to eat. He did drink a bit of wine. I'm thinking Jesus was probably a pretty great guest at a dinner party, you know? The one thing that's true there in that verse is that he was a friend to notorious sinners. So on the one hand, you've got these religious people who are waiting their whole lives for God's anointed, chosen son to show up. And they just know who he's going to be. They know what he's going to say. They know who he's going to judge and point the finger at. And then he comes on the scene and he is nothing like what they expected. They didn't know how to handle it. They didn't know how to move forward. And because Jesus who was not who they expected. He did nothing wrong in his life. He never hurt anyone. He never took advantage of anyone. He never broke any rules or any laws. But because he associated with people who did, Jesus was viewed as guilty by association. And so the religious leaders of his day set in motion a plan, a plan that was going to change the course of history. The Bible says, so the chief priests and the elders, the religious leaders of his day, they met to plot how they could capture Jesus and secretly kill him. After that, they went to one of his followers, a disciple by the name of Judas. And when they came to Judas, the traitor Judas had given them a prearranged signal. 
He said to these religious leaders, you'll know who Jesus is, who this rabble rouser is, this troublemaker, the one who's guilty by association. You'll know who he is when I greet him with a kiss. So we read that he betrays his master, his rabbi, God's chosen one, with a kiss on the cheek. The Bible says that they arrest Jesus, they put him on trial, and as he stands in front of his fellow countrymen, the very people that he came to love and serve and reveal God, they cry out with a loud voice. The mob roars, crucify him, because he shattered their expectations on who God was and who the Messiah was supposed to be, because he said everybody is lovable in God's eyes, and nobody can be cast away from God's love, and they couldn't stand it. It ruined everything that they thought they knew about themselves and the world around them and God, and so they said, crucify him, kill him. We can't stand to hear this man anymore. They took him to a place called Golgotha, They nailed him to a cross, and they put two common criminals, one on his left and one on his right, and they left him there to die. At the end, after hours of hanging there on the cross, the Bible says that Jesus knew his mission was complete. He knew he had done what he came to do. So he bowed his head, and he said, it is finished. And then he released his spirit, Jesus, Messiah, the one that people had been waiting for for centuries, was murdered by the very people that he was sent to. We read that after he dies on the cross, there's a man named Joseph. He's from a region called Arimathea. He goes and he takes Jesus' body down from the cross. He wraps it in a linen cloth and he laid it in a tomb. And then they rolled in front of the entrance a large stone. And in that moment, everybody assumed the story was over. Everybody assumed that Jesus was not actually the Messiah because he didn't come and say all the things that religious people expected him to. And certainly no Messiah, no anointed one, no Christ who had been sent from God. None of them, they couldn't be killed. There's no way that the Messiah could come and die at the hands of people. So we must have gotten it wrong. He must not have been the Messiah. And I'm telling you guys, if this is where the story of Jesus ends, then it's a tragedy. It's a bummer. It is an awful thing that humanity committed against someone who had never done anything wrong. Someone who had never hurt anyone, who had never taken advantage, who had never stolen, who had never lied, who had never cheated, who had never wasted, who had never hated, and yet we killed him for the things that he said. And he did. If this is where the story of Jesus ends, we need to remember it. We need to teach it to ourselves and to our children so that we never repeat that mistake again. It is a stain on the history of us all. But guess what? That is not the end of the story of Jesus. There is something yet to come. Because Jesus wasn't a victim. He wasn't a martyr. In fact, Jesus was not even murdered. The Bible says that when he came, he did speak for God. 
And when he performed miracles, he did it so that he could prove that he came from God. And when he welcomed every single person, including folks just like you and just like me, he did it in the name of God. In fact, that passage that we just read a moment ago, John chapter number 18, the Bible says that Jesus knew his mission had been accomplished. You see, Jesus had a plan. There was something he was supposed to be doing during his time here on earth. They thought they could thwart it. They thought they could end it. They thought they could shut it down. But the scripture says Jesus came to accomplish his mission from God. And he did. Now, what is that mission? What is it that Jesus came to do? Because if he's just a victim, if he's a martyr, if he was killed and put in the grave, then Easter shouldn't really be a time of celebration. Easter should not be a happy, clappy, dancey sort of time. Easter and Good Friday should be a a time of mourning where we regret what we did to an innocent man. But we should celebrate on Good Friday. And we choose to cheer and dance and clap at Easter because the story does not end with him going into the grave. In fact, the story hasn't ended yet. Let me show you what one of Jesus' first followers said about this story, about Jesus' mission, about what it is that he was trying to do in your life and in my life and in the history of the world. We're going to put these verses here on the screen. You can read along with us. It's from 2 Corinthians, and it's the the writings of one of Jesus' earliest followers, a guy by the name of Paul. And I want you to notice what Paul says here is happening in the life and the mission of Jesus. In verse number 16, it says, At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, and a new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God, who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us the task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. No longer counting people's sins against them. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin. So that we could be made right with God through Christ. Paul says the mission that Jesus came for was not just to be a good man, to not just set a great example for us to follow, but that God was at work through his life and his teaching, his death and his resurrection so that we could be restored, so that we could be brought back into a relationship with God. There are a few things I'm gonna point out out of these verses and we're gonna wrap up. The first thing these verses remind us of is that Jesus never sinned. The Bible tells us that in multiple places, Jesus never did anything wrong. He never took advantage of anybody. He never got mad and socked somebody in the jaw. He didn't do that. He didn't lash out in anger. He didn't live a life of greed. He never gossiped about anybody. Jesus did absolutely nothing wrong in his life. Think about that. Jesus never had anything that he regretted. 
He never had a, a time where he's like, gosh, I wish I, I could have a do-over, you know, with that conversation or how I handled her or him. He never needed a second chance because he had done absolutely nothing wrong. When he came and loved and served people perfectly, he did it without ever sinning. So the first thing this verse tells us is that Jesus never sinned. But the verse also tells you that Daniel, me, I have sinned. Now, it doesn't single me out, right? Like my name is not in there. Thankfully, that would be kind of embarrassing. But the Bible actually says that we have all sinned. Every single one of us have done what Jesus did not do. I mean, come on, this shouldn't be like some big revelation here. If there is a God, then you and I have probably broken some of his rules. I certainly know I have. I don't have any problem admitting that. I have certainly sinned. Jesus never stole, but I have. Now, I didn't steal the day I went to that drugstore. You guys need to believe me on that. I didn't, okay? But Jesus never sinned. There have been times, there have been times where I've stolen in my life. Jesus never hated anybody, but you certainly have, haven't you? There have been people that you've hated. Jesus never let his ego drive him. He never did anything that you and I do on a regular basis. It's like he was perfect. We were not perfect. In truth, my life is full of regret. There are people that I've taken advantage of. There are conversations I wish I could take back. There are relationships that I've broken. And that was all last week. Like, I mean, I gotta tell you guys, there is a lot in my life that just, it doesn't measure up. I'm not the person that I want to be. I know that in some way I failed to meet the standard that I should. Whether it's God's standard or society's standard or my own, I, I just haven't measured up. So we've got this situation where God reveals himself through a Messiah, an anointed Christ, and he does so perfectly without any sin. And then you've got a whole world full of sin over here, and the question becomes, what's God going to do about it? I mean, he could just wave his hand and wipe it all away, right? God could just ignore every wrong thing that you and I have done. He could do that, but would that be fair? Would that be right? I mean, think about it like this. Let's go back to the drugstore when I was 10 years old. Suppose the manager had brought us into the back and he said, okay, look, this is a one-time thing, you guys. You, you know better. Don't do it again. I'm not gonna push, press charges. I'm just gonna let you guys go, but don't do it again, okay? And so we left on that Easter Sunday and then we came back the next day and we stole again and he caught us. Should the owner, should the manager just forgive, forget? What if we came back day after day after day and we continued to steal from him? Would it be right for the owner to simply say, ah, oh, don't worry about it. It's not that big of a deal. I forgive you guys. No, something has to be done about that. And then it's not just me and my sister who are doing wrong to this poor shop owner, but it's everybody. Imagine every kid in our city going to Shoppers Drug Mart and stealing every single day. Should the managers, should the owners, should they just say, ah, forget it. It's no big deal. We'll let that go. Of course not. That doesn't make sense. And then it's not not just like little stuff like stealing. There is real evil in our world. Suppose some kid gets mad at the shopkeeper and he decides I'm going to light his whole shop on fire. And he did. 
Should the shopkeeper just say, ah, forget it, it's no big deal? Of course not. And that's the way our world is. Our world is full of evil and brokenness. We abuse one another on a daily basis. And then we pretend like, ah, it's no big deal. And if there's a God out there, he should just let it all go. But that doesn't make sense. And it's certainly not justice. The other option that God would have would be to come with the hammer of justice. I mean, he could show up like everybody expected the Messiah to and judge and condemn and hold every single one of us accountable. And if he did that, he would be justified because certainly I've done enough wrong to earn whatever's coming to me. And yet the Bible says that God through Jesus doesn't choose either one of those options. Instead, he chooses a third way where Jesus his Messiah, his anointed one, the one who came from God actually enters into our brokenness. That on the cross, he took the worst evil that we could throw at him. All the hatred, all the greed, all the jealousy, all the pride, all the arrogance, all of that, we heaped it on him. And he took it He bore it in his body. And the Bible says in the passage that we just read, God was at work through that, reconciling us, forgiving all of our sins because they were placed on Jesus who paid the penalty that we should have paid. Easter is ultimately a story of guilt by association. Jesus Christ chose guilt by association with me so that I could experience forgiveness by association with him. You see, a relationship with God, Christianity, is not about being a good person. It's about admitting that you're not a particularly good person. It's not about earning God's love. It is about receiving the free gift of God's love through Jesus Christ. When Jesus raised from the dead, it was God placing his stamp of approval on Jesus' life and his sacrifice for every stupid mistake that I've made and that you've made. So now you're left with a choice. Your sin can only be in one of two places, right? Either you're gonna carry it or you can allow Jesus to carry it. You can walk around with guilt and regret and with shame. You can hate the things that you've done. You can even learn to hate yourself. There are lots of people that do. Or you can trust that you are loved and accepted and forgiven and restored and resurrected to new life through Jesus who came and offered himself to be the sacrifice for your mistakes and for your regrets. 